Bradshaw, a little give. Akamatis. The miracle man. Can he kick another one with the left foot? I think he has. Golan passes. All clear, boys. Akamatis has done it. Still working. Akamatis, little foot under it. Now from an impossible angle. Hooking it back. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. it forward, Hart, who had a great start to this game, Akamanis, can he keep it in? He can! Jason Akamanis has kicked one of the goals of the season! Suddenly there's a different feeling over this game. The lines, the sparkle has returned. Carousella, Akamanis, talk about sparkle, Jason knows how to kick it! Oh! What an extraordinary kick from Jason Akamanis! Only he could do it. Only he could do it. When he kicked it, I thought, what is he doing going onto his left foot? He's a natural right footer, such as his confidence in his left boot. Doesn't matter what side of the ground he's on. Carousella just came onto the ground. Lappin to Carousella to Akamanis. And have a look at this goal. Five-minute warning. Five minutes of game time left. Buckley desperate slaps it out. Can Leon Davis pick it up? He's bowled over. Back to Brad Scott. Around the corner to the full forward area. Lynch can't manufacture a mark. Akamanis, left foot snap. Akamanis has kicked a goal. What a snap. Jason Akamanis has kicked a miraculous goal on the left. The greatest showman, Jason Akermanis, the last of a particular breed of footballer, full of character, flashy, cocky, would say it to your face and back it up. How about this rap sheet? Three-time AFL Premiership player, 2001, 2002, 2003. Brownlow medalist in 2001. AFL Goal of the Year, 2002. Four-time All-Australian. Uh, two times Merritt Murray medal. That's the best and fairest for Brisbane in 99, 2005. Brisbane leading goal kicker, 2004. Western Bulldogs leading goal kicker 2009 and Australian Football Hall of Fame. He was inducted back in 2015. It's a big hello and welcome to Jason Akamanis. Oh, hello. What a bloody rap. I mean, just, I was at a function during, uh, on Saturday before the grand final as it was that Saturday. And I said, uh, I think you guys have forgotten just how good I was. And I was saying it with tongue in cheek. So we just rolled out the top five goals at the AFL, sort of did for me. <laughs> which is like 10 goals, but not that tough off. And I was, uh, even I even I look back, uh, and I'm, uh, I've always been accused of being a little bit sort of overconfident, but I explained to people, you know, it's not that. It, I needed to. It, all I had was footy. The only thing I was really, really good at was footy. You need to understand, I did, you know, I had a single mum and bloody, I had one brother. Well, so that, I actually have a half brother, but I had my, my main, my normal brother, Rory. And so... You know, life for me was uh, not the not your your stock standard kind of raised and and what you do, but it was certainly uh, those those things that people say and all those great. Uh, I suppose everyone looks good on a highlight reel, but they are just uh, I'm more more amazed that they happen than the reality is. I never you never think they would when you grow up. You never think you would with this talent. You're talking about uh, the AFL Grand Final. I mean, as we record, Richmond are back-to-back premiers. Uh, what's your thoughts on uh, the night Grand Final at the Gabba? Well, I'm a pretty. I've always been a very adaptable man, but I think it's it's a great uh, sort of showpiece for the AFL to consider. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, in the future, obviously they've got this ridiculously long agreement with the MCC, and the reason they have that is 
is totally and understandably biased and unjust for everyone outside of the MCG because the MC, MCC, as it is, who run that ground, know that that game, they make so much money out of. Uh, the deal that they pay the AFL is, is staggering and the AFL themselves make a huge amount of money out of it. But to see it somewhere else and to see it in a different format, so at night and at the, at the little G, as we call it, the Gabba, it, it was just as successful. It would have rated just as much. It would have rated through the roof. So I think the AFL should consider that long-standing deal that they got. And, and you know, if they think that they're a truly national competition, they should consider maybe, just maybe, taking it to the rest of the people. Like, uh, you know, the Perth Stadium, that'll hold 60,000 and, and make them stacks. And they can make that off the fact that they know that what they make, 12 million bucks or whatever it is most years at the MCC. Well, you just change and adjust the ticketing price for those stadiums and you can move the great grand final around. And, uh, and that now is on the table. I've got some uh, more curly questions about the AFL, which I'm about to ask you. But uh, you find yourself back in Brisbane, uh, currently working in real estate. I mean, COVID-19 has affected the world and a lot of industries. Uh, people being made redundant. Uh, one term that I've heard floated around a fair bit is people having transferable skills to other jobs or other roles or industries themselves. What transferable skills from the AFL have you taken to real estate? That is a brilliant, brilliant question. And I, I was thinking about it the other day. And someone asked me, they said, Okay, you're in real estate. Uh, why? And I said, well, you know, there's lots of reasons why. Different industry, mastery of craft. I've got other businesses, many hats. I do lots of things. But the one thing that I that I forgot and I didn't realise how how in footy you talk to say the guys in the wheelchair who has to go into the you know the wheelchair access or you, and and all the way through all the way up to CEOs would come along. You'd be talking to them and, and some of my close mates still who are older gentlemen who in their sixties and seventies, you know, ran. General 10 or they ran this company or that company and you could just uh, you can imagine the skills if you actually try what you who you have to talk to and not just your own teammates but the fans and being uh well largely popular and also unpopular but the popular people at least they they're just everywhere so you've got mums and dads you know generally they've got kids you've got to talk to them so when i go to real estate now having three daughters myself and then do auctioning and auctioneering i you know i talk to pretty much bloody everyone and I didn't realize that those skills that I had learned that I had to had to had to learn to talk with and talk to and talk about that they are just so important now that I'm in real estate it's not funny and can you give us a quick demo of your, your auctioneering skills well I was there the other day and I, I've done 20 years of auctioning and we're just doing one say for my, my my jumpers and the the funny thing about when you do say houses You've got your rules, your general rules, of course, that, that you know, unconditional. You've got five days, uh, no cooling off period. They're all waived. Building and pest is done. Five to seven, you know, percent deposit. But when you're like $50 now, I got 50, I got 100, 150, I got 800, I got 800 now. And when they go to like 810 and then they slow it down, 815, you, and you're on the fly, you're like 815 now. Wait a, and they're actually harder than the bigger numbers when you go like sort of, yeah, I got a million now. Joel, I got a million, I got a million. I got one now. Can I go up in 50s? I go up in 50s. I go, okay, one, one million and 50 now. I got one million and 50. Back to you. So, so they're, the, they're the type of things I find, uh, you know, you certainly get better as you do it, but you, you've got to be on your toes. Oh, my God, you have to be on your toes. <laughs> and uh, perhaps could we see you uh, on the block um, being an auctioneer anytime soon? Yeah, I'd have to do my Victorian license as far as it, that's not uh, difficult. But yes, anything's possible. But uh, <laughs> if, they, uh, if they see me and they, they realise I'm good or not, that's a, that, 
you know, that's another story. But if I'm if I'm good enough and they think oh, I wouldn't mind hacking doing it, then I'll be there. I have no doubt. But yes, yes, yeah. funny you say that. Maybe I should uh, talk to my Scotty Cairns, my mate. So I might as well ring him. Can't absolutely, absolutely. Now, if someone approaches you uh, for one-on-one coaching, what can they expect? Yeah, that's a good question. So since I've come back, there's a couple of guys that have got their own businesses, which are really good. And you go through their apps or you go through their websites. Uh, one of the ones I've worked with so far since coming back was one-on-one coaching. And most of the guys, well, those not most of them, those two particular uh, I say kids because they were, they're 13 year olds. So their parents would like just a little bit more than it's a bit hard to get some of that high end sort of uh, coaching that you just need sometimes of what you're doing and how you're running or you're playing Aussie rules footy. And one-on-one's very much an Aussie rules footballer's uh, dream in the sense of that's, that's the site you go to. You go to others that could, you could do cricket, you could do netball, you could do bloody chess for all I know. They're, I mean, they're different sites, but one-on-one, for example, just a bit more specific and specialise and of course you know me I've, I've coached for five years you know I've bloody played the game for nearly all of my life and of course I uh, did a degree in coaching so you know I've got, I've got some idea and at least when you see kids and you know where they're at you can just adjust it as they, as you come. And is this all leading to hopefully lead to some form of an AFL coaching job? I mean could we see you coaching one of the girls teams in the uh, AFLW? Oh, hell no. Hell no. I'm finally out. <laughs> I spent my life in it and I uh, didn't realise until you get out of it. Uh, having done golf and then you go to Q school and, and really trying hard to be good at that. I mean, that's a 30, 40 hour a week kind of gig mm. uh, just to be good at golf, let alone anything else. And then with real estate, I mean, you're working 70 hours a week. I didn't realise how hard real estate agents really do work. I mean, when I bloody bought and sold, I was always going, oh, you bloods, you know, like everyone, oh, you guys make good money. <laughs> hey, don't worry about the money. It's the sheer amount of time it takes to get deals done, to get to get contracts ordered, to get the vendors and the buyers to, to agree. It's, and, it, you know, and you might have four or five properties at the exact same time. So you're doing that every day. So if I could find time uh, outside of my normal uh, work, and then I've got three daughters who need my time as well as my wife, well, just by all means, I'd uh, happily going coach but I don't think I've got enough time because that was I mean that's been a big uh, part of the the narrative the last few years that uh, no one will give uh, Acura a chance uh, at a top job or an assistant sort of job but you've kind of you're ready to move on from that or just it's just if it works out with what you're currently doing yeah I think it's it's all those factors I think there's a I don't know maybe it's just perception or reality you do need to know uh, the industry works very much on a lot of your cred as far as what you're doing and, and people talking within it. The reality is completely different, of course. You know, you see guys come in. And, and for a long time, my ego was quite bruised, I think, seeing guys who I knew, know that don't love footy or understand footy as much as I did. I've, you know, some of my teammates who were getting jobs and I'm naturally, you know, a bit upset by this. But, of course, that's not fair either. It's not fair on me and it's not fair on them. They, for various reasons, are being in the industry. They're giving their time to it. Uh, and it's great. It really is great. And I suppose <laughs> the irony, though, Joel, is right now they're probably offering me five jobs uh, now that I've given up. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm about doing something else. And my life has got even, you know, just greater purpose and mastery of craft again and, and autonomy, the three things that all humans need. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I never say never, I suppose. But at the moment, oh, man, I mean, it's, it's not a great industry to be in at times, it can be toxic, uh, but also it's, it's, there's no great job security either. So you really do have to uh, have this overall love and passion for it that's it's unbridled. 
how does Brisbane today compare to when you were growing up in Brisbane playing AFL? Is it more accepted? Is it more encouraged? Uh, I mean, obviously, three premierships do help, but you really said it was a culture shock when you got up there and wanted to play AFL, correct? Oh, well, that's Aussie Rules. Yeah, when I wanted to play Aussie Rules, yes, is a bit... Uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's the game. Playing in the AFL, I mean, I was in high school when I started playing in the AFL as a as an 18-year-old. So the, the crazy thing for me was the standard of footy. It wasn't like it was terrible. You did get unbelievable standard when you went into sort of regional and state teams, but the local comps, that uh, could be a bit hit and miss. And, and having been in, in a kind of footy area in Mildura, being born there, mum was from here, from Ekebin, which is on the south side of Brisbane, and she obviously wanted to come back home. And we did. I'm glad she did because the opportunities here are just incredible compared to bloody Mildura. But yes, and when I... When I had to play it, uh, my mum saw them my first game and as soon as she saw it, she said uh, I kicked 10 and got bloody McDonald's Encouragement Award and I was feeling pretty good about myself. My mum was like, listen, son, I don't think the standard here is as good as it is in Victoria. She goes, I want you to play up from now on, which is a, not, a, not a normal conversation you have with your kid when you have your 10-year-old playing under 10s. So from that moment on, every weekend I had to play under 10s under 12s and under 14s generally most weekends. And when you're a skinny redhead kid who's quick, you can kick it from 50, even at that age, so probably, you know, maybe 12, I could kick it 50 metres uh, despite my size, just that much power I could generate. Uh, I was in demand and the teams I in mean, weren't great. So that's the way I learned to play Aussie Rules footy and coming through. And, of course, you know, people think it's not a footy state and they're, they're correct as far as the, the perception of it. But Queensland is a very... They're great because you, you can share. You, we all share. We all share. We've got lots of different sports because of the weather, because of the culture, because of the way it's done. In the past, you've got rugby league, rugby union, a huge sports, of course. And then Aussie Royals is still played by so many people in the state, particularly down the Gold Coast where a lot of Victorians come up. So that's the real culture of it. But uh, it's sort of a bit of an undercurrent of, of, of the system here and the way it works. So uh, coming through, but I copped it all the time. And that's what I say. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of vitriol when I was at an all-boys rugby union school in Nudgee College on an athletic scholarship. And when I was in year 12 playing, I, I you know, uh, you know, gay AFL and mm. you, blokes are, you blokes are soft and you blokes are weak and I got called poofter every day, every day. And so when we're winning, uh, it just made the whole process just a little, just a little bit, just a little bit more pleasurable. I would describe you as one of the uh, the last of a generation, uh, one of the true characters of the game AFL. I mean, fans, they either loved you or they hated you. I mean, is that something that's kind of missing from today's product? I mean, sure, these guys are probably the best athletes going around, but character-wise, not so much. I think that, uh, it, it, I don't know if it's the perception or the reality of it, the fact that, that what you're saying is is, is true. And but our our biases are in our era, and I talk about like Michael Jordan. You know, Michael mm. Jordan was was super megastar, but he he was at the time when he's the original. Mm. And when you're the original, it never seems to be the same. No one ever says, and that's why Jordan's going to be the greatest of all time. Not because Kobe wasn't good enough, or not because LeBron wasn't good enough, but what he did, he he had to do it where there was no other, there was no equal. He did he did that in that era. And it's the same with the Lions, who were the, the originals. Before. We were after Adelaide, for example. Adelaide were back-to-back, and we ended up becoming back-to-back-to-back. So that then you become your own original. Now, people have matched that. Teams have matched that. But they wouldn't get within 10 goals of us. Just the sheer talent we had in our, our sort of wheelhouse. Yet for me and what I, I felt like, I, 
I was in a market that needed fans, that needed promotion. So my uh, my selfishness for the and want for the game to be bigger because of the crap I used to cop was also married in with my personality. So I could promote the game. I could enjoy the fact that fans started to come and then be that character that uh, they needed to support because we all do. And the theatre of sport gives us this beautiful avenue to make that happen. And I think that's the best way to understand it. Oh, there's just as many characters. But they are not going to probably do the things I was prepared to do, the cop, the abuse I cop for having blonde hair and, and a bloody big, beautiful black goatee, doing handstands after we won. And, you know, there, was, there wasn't there was not just uh, vitriol from my, my enemies as far as the other fans, even within my own, own sort of fans, there was some that, probably didn't like it but my own teammates some of it were like no nah, look at that guy doing that that's you know just individual selfish attention seeking all that kind of shit yet the reality was that's not the case because uh you know we all can win out of that kind of stuff and it took a while for all of them to be on board but thankfully lee matthews was the guy being the coach who was able to manage and massage those those problems that were arising with other players and really it wasn't actually about me it was all about them and that, as it is when you're upset at something if you had to describe someone as a current day Jason Ackermanis, who would that be? Uh, not many. I suppose it's hard to go like to like. It's like saying, you know, that Ferrari is that that and that Bugatti Veyron. And he's, you know, who's who's the same? I mean, they're quite different in what they do and how they look. Yet they are they're just beautiful cars. I, I always think like uh, with the with the lines. I mean, I I think Charlie Cameron. Is probably because of his speed and his skill. He's sort of similar size, that smaller worry. But in my era, the only guy who got close, close with skill would be, say, Andrew Jump. There's a couple of guys who are good both feet, Simon Black and, and you know, Sam, uh, the great uh, uh, Hawthorne player. Sammy uh, Mitchell. But Sam, Sam Mitchell, that's it. He's a, Sam Mitchell. Two common names. Who <laughs> has two first <laughs> names? Yeah, he's confusing me. Sammy Mitchell, like, beautiful kicks, both left and right foot. So... Uh, there's not too many that have that same skill level even. And that's, uh, yeah, that that can be out of accidental choice. But, yeah, that, that it's nearly an impossible question to answer, even though it's a way, I answered it way too much. Now, we'll talk about the AFL and coaching sort of off the agenda at this point in your life. I mean, how would you describe your relationship with the AFL? Well, it's not, it's not good or bad. It's, it's pretty much like most ex-players, I reckon. I mean, I... My issues throughout the year, I mean, they're probably more personal anyway, and there's stuff I'll get over. Like, guys like Ender Dimitri, I mean, I would say yeah. to his face, like, some of the stuff he did, the way he, uh, that, say, 2004 uh, yeah. rubbish that he served up where he made us play a home prelim final away from the Gabba when we didn't the right because of the rules. And he, he could have changed them and, and could have made them right, but he was getting he was getting sucked into the bias of the Melbourne media and, and and some of the Melbourne coaches as well were mm-hmm. saying it's not good for the game and just that crap. And then he, he did something I'll never forget, which was when I, when I came out and said that, that there's drugs in our sport, which there were. And I played against guys who, were on, who have since said that, you know, they've lied to the press and said they weren't. And everyone knows it. Their teammates have come to me and said, yep, no, he was on it. He was on mm-hmm. uh, amphetamines. Uh, and he said at the time, he said, I should treat those comments with disdain. Let me, let me say that again. I should treat those comments with disdain. And this is a CEO of a sport that wants to be clean and wants to, be, you know, wants to be everything to everyone. You can tell, geez, they're on every bandwagon trying to win. Mm. Well, you know, you can um, you can say what you want, but when your CEO says that, I think that's a 
it's never a great look. And I know that Andrew in his own life has a lot of, like a massive chip on his shoulder, the way he grew up and what he copped. And he's an enforcer, so he's a bit of a sledgehammer. We know that. Uh, but the, some of the stuff he said, though, I know he'd be embarrassed to, to talk about now. So he should. So they're my issues. The AFL now, I don't know, most of the guys moved on. So, uh, you know, Steve Hocking and these kind of guys. So, I mean, I don't know those guys. They're good fellas. And, and Gil, and you can name probably another another 10. But uh, they're just uh, people doing their job. And I'm sure they love the game as much as I do. You mentioned sort of, you know, that uh, moving the grand final around the country and that it's very localised in tradition at the MCG. I, I for one, love the day grand final and having it at the MCG. But uh, you did mention in uh, the Sacked podcast uh, a reference to the AFL as the Melbourne Mafia and you touched on the 2004 finals, having to play a home uh, game at the MCG, then travelling back to Brisbane, then travelling back to the MCG again, which you said did cost you dearly that year. I mean, do you... so you do believe that the AFL were purposely trying to sabotage Brisbane? Oh, no doubt. No, and that year, I think they'd uh, they would be foolish to ever say that they weren't. Particularly Andrew, and the and you know only he knows the truth, I suppose, in some sense. But we all knew, and mm. it's not like it was uh, they were, they weren't hiding it. it. Wasn't like they tried to do anything other than sabotage it, uh, including a conversation I know that Lee Matthews had with Andrew Dimitri, and I know he rang and said, "Hey, mate, mate." My that is not that is not the way this competition should be, and as much as we we have our buys, Lee, of course, you know he knew he has a coach. Mm. We were a huge chance to just flog them, and in the end, uh, not only would we have flogged you along, they should have won that game, but didn't they? Had stage fright and missed their opportunities late in the game. But the fact that we copped those three injuries that ended up pretty much losing our own energy in the second half because we had we had to play with guys of Craig McRae a hamstring. You had the great Alistair Lynch, full forward extraordinaire, and just, just the whole team's, you know, forward thrust were generally around him, did a quad. And then you had Jonathan Brown, who, who cracked a bone in that game and broke, basically broke apart, you know, just a small fraction of his leg. So those things, I don't know if they wouldn't have happened, but I, and Sean Hart as well. I could probably guarantee that the chances of that happening, all four of them at home, were pretty much none. You might have got one, but. So they're the things that just uh, burn in your soul. But the mafia, it's a probably a strong word. Uh, when I look back and reflect, I, put, I shouldn't have had those bloody four monsters before I went in. You know, that was just that was probably talking like, I was, you know, I don't know, like those Germans when they get too excited, just go, rah, 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 just too much. <laughs> anyway, I'll fix that for the next podcast. I'm a passionate uh, Sydney Swan supporter. So I kind of have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder with the, the Victorian audience or... The, uh, the bosses, I guess you could say. I mean, we'll say, for example, Buddy comes to Sydney, all of a sudden we get a trade ban. I mean, the rumour was that the AFL wanted Buddy to go to GWS to help out that, you know, GWS in the game. Uh, Tom Lynch leaves the Gold Coast, goes to Richmond, wins a premiership, doesn't seem to be a trade ban there. I mean, Richmond have won their second grand final. They're every chance potentially to go back to back to back. Hawthorne recently did that uh, a few years ago. Is it, is it, I don't want to say corrupt, but is the AFL biased against interstate clubs unless it fits their agenda? Oh, most definitely. And, you know, as the hypocrite bus again comes around the corner and sitting on there with nearly every human being, including the AFL at times, I mean, they they can get off at any stop they like. But, yeah, that's, that's a couple of things that they probably uh, would look back and say, I think we made some errors there. And, I'm, and, and knowing life, like the Zen Buddhists say, everything, and I mean everything, has both good and bad. 
And things that you think are just wonderful, I've just won an AFL flag. Well, the bad is you, you've got to work your whole life for it. You've got to get, invest so much and you can miss out on other opportunities for that, uh, that chance, just a chance to do that. Uh, so, it, you know, I think when what they did, if they haven't learned that lesson, uh, Sydney Swans should be, uh, hopefully they don't carry it forever, but they should have been agreed. That, and everyone outside of that kind of, this sort of small bubble that exists uh, with the Melbourne, the Melbourne media, the Melbourne staff, the CEOs, and the game itself at times, they, they will certainly look back and say, yeah, ooh, that uh, was a bit unfair, a bit unjust. I think next time we might just, uh, and they have. Uh, that's why probably they didn't do those those same things or same uh, in part such ridiculously <laughs> stupid penalties uh, on any club since. And I don't think they'll do that again, in particular Sydney. And I have no doubt that at some stage, the universe will correct itself and even it out. So Sydney Swans will get something they probably thought, oh, geez, we're lucky to get that. And as much as that didn't, doesn't help the, the, the buddy deal and the, you know, the other, the next years of the trade ban, well, that's okay too. They, uh, it'll even up. I guarantee it'll even up. I'll tell you what, I really do hope so. But I ask about your relationship with the AFL today. What about your relationship with the Brisbane Lions? Oh, it's never been better, really, since I left. In fact, it was non-existent, of course, once I left. I mean, it wasn't really that it was the whole club. It was really just me and Lee. Lee mm-hmm. tried to get a couple of players on board, the leadership group, and, you know, justly so. I was, I was getting a little bit upset with the way the club was going, but that was my problem. It's not his problem. It's not the other players' problem. And it wasn't the club and anyone, the staff now. And while the hurt was there, as I... Uh, used to be known to do. I'd be, you know, walking across a bridge and then throw a big match over my left shoulder and burn it and blow it up. And uh, that wouldn't, that doesn't work uh, as I've learned. So that I wouldn't be doing the same thing now as I did then. Uh, so that's okay too. So the relationship with the Lions, I mean, now that I've come back and now I'm home, I live here back home, all my friends and family are the people I like, Joel, they're here. So they but a lot of my teammates say who are out, out in our world, the other world, out of, outside of the bubble of Aussie Rules footy in the AFL, they also like networking, for example, like the Lions Hearts, which is they're my age, sort of, or, or around my age, sort of 40s, early 40s. And so they're, and all my mates that I grew up with in school and stuff, they're, they're now all running their own businesses and, and successful in their own life. So, and also they're my network, they're my friends and stuff. So I've been getting more involved that way. It's, uh, as it always is, you know, selfishly, it works great with uh, real estate and, and building your network up and talking to people. And yeah, it's, it's wonderful. So, and not having that pressure of, of working for them, say, or playing or coaching for them, where now they've got a completely new crew. So it, it certainly feels and is much different than, than it was in 2006 when I got divorced from Lee. Well, that was horrible. So what I think it was a couple of years ago, a EJ Witten uh, All-Stars game. Uh, you and Chris Johnson uh, cracked heads, literally. Yeah, we did. The big, bloody, you know, rock-hard-headed, you know, <laughs> brother that he is. He's uh, obviously one of my great teammates. And mate, he's a mate of mine. Don't worry about that. But he, yeah, he just got a bit excited, you know. He'd been playing a bit and just uh, lined me up. Uh, and it's such a shame because I couldn't go back on. Some, I didn't even really get a concussion, but I just had a, maybe a thousandth of a second where I was like, oh, just the bit days my memory has gone from that. But, uh, yeah, no, that hurt. And uh, I'm sure he felt uh, – I know that there was a lot of happy people out there that I got finally got ironed out, ironically, from one of my premiership teammates 
But I can tell you that Chris Johnson rang me 10 times after that game and rang me the next day five times and said, I'm sorry, mate. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. I shouldn't have done that. It's not, you know, I, you know, I love you. I'm really sorry. Uh, brother, can we make it up to you? So, you know, that, it just shows you the human nature and just the, the bond that we have. And always will have. And I can see it when I come back now with my, my premiership teammates who live here and, and mates. So, yes, it's... <laughs> uh, but anyway, yes, bastard. Got me good. Because <laughs> looking at the replay, he, um, you know, you, you went to tackle him and he kind of put his head forward, knocked you out and kept going. He wasn't even phased at all. No, it was a bit like the old, you know, you get into the white line fever. Just once you get back into that old groove of things, which he was straight out of half time and... And as I said to him, I said, mate, that's my fault. I mean, what was I thinking? I mean, no one, no one tackles. <laughs> no one tackles in these games for a very good reason. Because you're, you're just enjoying yourself just for charity. <laughs> that, was a, that was such a dumb move. Anyway, I learned my lesson. Next year, I don't think I made one tackle. Although Fev did get me on the next game, which was last year. Big Fev. And uh, he, he's just such an idiot. And I'm glad. I said, mate, the university, I think he did his knee not long after that. And I said, that'll teach you. Mate, you just, get, you just, you just find a way, Fev, to just go that extra level of stupidity, mate. Just bring it back. <laughs> stop, stop being an idiot. Although the crowd loved it. That was great entertainment. So what do you do? Now, you speak about uh, lethal Lee Matthews there. Um, you lost your mum early in life, uh, not really knowing your biological father. Clearly, you looked at Lee Matthews as a father figure, correct? Yeah, all my coaches were. From the very day I started having coaches, when I was like five or six, Gordon Casey was my first coach. He taught me the first first training session. Said, mate, you, you need to learn to kick both feet because mm. you've got the skills to do it. Do it. If you do that, you'll never get in trouble on an Aussie rules field. And he was right. And because I listened, because my coaches were my dads, I just, uh, you know, anything they said, they were, my, they were the people I looked up to. Absolutely. Lee was no different. And did Lee, did he know that you thought that of him? Probably not. I think probably maybe this year might have been the first time he'd ever heard it. I, I had to do an interview with Crash Craddock, Robert Craddock, who's a great, a great journo, and I've known Crash for years. And bloody hell, small place Brisbane, but we, uh, we get on fantastic. But yeah, I think with, and I sort of had to, I had to go through the process of trying to, as I do, because I've done forty three years of bloody psychology. So I, I, I was working out the problem. Why did I behave like that? Why was I doing that? Take as I do. I try and take, you know, full responsibility for everything in the bloody universe, my universe. Jesus, Mars could bloody hit Jupiter and I'll find a way to take responsibility for it because I've learned that that's the way you need the role. You need to own it, uh, good and bad. So, and then I said, that's right. And I just realized, oh my God, Lee, he, he, to me, he was my dad and he had to be perfect because I never had a dad. Mm. Uh, I didn't know that dads have faults, <laughs> which seems so dumb, right? It seems like the dumbest thing you could think. But when you don't have one and you get raised, you get a single mom who passes away at 20. Uh, well, sorry, I was 20, sorry, she passed away at 41. Uh, my brother, my younger brother, Rory, he was uh, 17, so I had to look over his legal guardian, you know, for a month. So that was uh, yeah, interesting times, and I think that's what affected it in the end, uh, no doubt. And that's this, uh, this, this dealing with per perfection and this want that he needed to be that guy, and it's unfair on Lee. Ever since, though, we've been, we bloody get on great. I mean, we, we always did get, our relationship was actually always really good until that last little bit, which is only kind of a few months. Uh, and then it was all that kind of hate afterwards. Uh, but we, we sold it. We had a coffee. We've been, uh, I don't know, bloody three or four engagements together. And, and I love his company. 
That's great to hear that uh, everything's all, all back, I guess, how it was all back in, uh, like, on good graces to hear. But, I mean, back in the day, I mean, it was a bit of a strange relationship uh, towards the end. I mean, the forever now infamous 2003 radio interview about Nigel Lappin's uh, broken, not broken ribs, sore ribs. Don't don't hit his ribs, Collingwood yeah. Uh, yeah, radio interview going into the 2003 <laughs> yeah, grand final. Um, that yeah, plus, one of my better ones. And the, I believe it was the 2006 column where you, you were calling out uh, the game plan because you, you were talking about, I think, having three different players run through you and uh, Lee Matthews not picking up on that. I mean, when do you think you and Lee Matthews were at a point back then where you, this could not be reconciled? Oh, it was after that column. No mm. doubt. No doubt. It, it's, it was still, I'm even amazed that it lasted as long as it did in the end. I mean, it took a tool. That was, excuse me, that was late March. So first round would have been late March. Mm. And so he sacked me in July. So that's, there's a few months there. The, the way, but I mean, in the end, uh, he just lost face. And when you lose face, you can do, you can try and justify it, which you, you do with just a criticism. Everyone is the same. I can criticise you right now. I can guarantee you're starting to formulate uh, something to justify it in some way, shape or form. And that's just human that's just human conditions. Everyone does it. So for Lee to get upset and uh, not react the way I should, the, the mistake I made, you know, the, his reaction is completely normal. The, the, you know, even as great as he was and as much as Phil Jaunty and the psychologists around us, you know, could talk it and get it, get it to a happy place. Uh, you know, the reality was my mistake was making that public. Their conversations that I could have had with Lee in private and be no problem. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been, certainly he wouldn't have taken it back. He would have thought about it for a few days and tried to justify it a few days. But the other coaches knew. Uh, when I said it, while it was a, a dumb idea, well, it was spot on. We need to change our game plan. And it was changing in front of us. But Lee, being Lee and myself, uh, being myself, uh, enforces they are very stubborn. And when you get stubborn and you think you're right, you're not going to move the goalpost. You're not going to say, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, Acker. Maybe we need to do that. And I thought he'd take it the way it should have been, but he didn't. No way. And nor should I recently spoke with Darren Croswell, who was an assistant coach at the Lions there for a few years. And he came off the back of a year at Geelong under Bomber Thompson, where he was kind of empowered to really take control of the midfield. But he said coming to Brisbane uh, was one of the worst moves in his career I guess more referring to his gambling addiction that would happen from there but he also said that Lee Matthews didn't really delegate much to his assistant coaches was that potentially his undoing trying to have full control or is that not how you see it no that's exactly right I mean I'm, I'm Mason Kreza and I've been Mason Kreza for a long time and I just helped him sell his house actually back where we both lived which is Aubrey Wodonga uh, where I moved up from and we were coaching the same league the Ovens and Murray for a while there together against each other and I think with Krez, I think that when you, and he would agree, and I've talked to him about this, that he would describe him at training as a witch's hat, which I'm pretty sure he would have said something similar. So, and that that there is the issue. I think what he's saying is more, more from, and it would have been maybe the same with the other coaches, but sometimes you get used to sort of your role and understanding that when you come in, as we are, we're set up to help. We want to be the best we can. We want to have an influence on the team. And as a coach, when you feel like you're just not really doing any of that, this is frustrating. And I felt like, uh, despite he had a lot of knowledge to give, but uh, you can either go about it with enforcers a certain way because the, the way our brains are set up is pretty simple. We want to control as much as we can. And that's why as co- they make good coaches because we can, and you know, make good captains because we can, we can verbally say, well, come on, guys, and we can drag you along 
you know, where the guys like Nigel Lappin who were always worried about everyone else and the, what they were thinking and always reflecting on every single, single thing and looking for deeper meanings. Well, he couldn't do that. He couldn't say, look, I'll grab this game by the scruff of the neck and do that. And Kraz is that kind of personality. So they, uh, and the Tate does, and he would say it now that there's a bit of management, a bit of skill development that he has now. He could have easily said, hey, listen, listen, I'm here. I want to help. What can I do? Can I run some drills? And he would have. But uh, at the time, it, was, it would have been just frustrating. Some would blame the media for many of the issues that I guess you would eventually have with Brisbane, Western Bulldogs. But ironically, especially in Brisbane, you were the face of the Lions, especially when it came to promoting the club and uh, getting making Brisbane a, 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 the name that it is. Obviously, the three premierships do help, but it's kind of funny to see, you know, former teammates in Alistair Lynch, Jonathan Brown, uh, the names go on. They're regulars on TV and radio now. Would you say that you were one of the first guys at Brisbane to really embrace that media role? Oh, I would say absolutely. And, and in, to the fact that I could tell you, I got, absolutely did in the sense. What happened was, so when Lee came in 99, players would do interviews and basically it was just this this very spasmodic rotation. If you had a good week or you won, a, won an award or you're an All-Australian, you might get on the TV. But Lee did everything, controlled everything. So all the media conferences that he do twice a week or once a week, every Friday in the end, they were and after the game, of course, he would be the guy uh, telling everyone what's going on. Now, the reason he did that is because he's from Melbourne. And in Melbourne, you don't want to give the opposition anything because they read everything. They look for deep means. They use it against you. They put it, you know, they put an article uh, on the board and say, mm. look at these blokes. They think they're going right. And so Lee didn't understand that there's this, this other side that we needed to promote. So in 2001, when I won the Brownlee, the next year, I was the only one. So no Michael Voss at this stage, no Justin Lepage or, or Alistair Lynch. Those three in particular, because they're a bit older, but they're, um, you know, uh, they end up doing media. So I, by myself, with Lee, uh, that next year I was doing a column once a week of which Lee himself would edit and send in. So if there's any issues, you get, no, I wouldn't like that. No, I don't agree with that. You can't say that. And, and chop it. And after a couple of weeks, he rang me and said, no, I don't think this column thing's for you. And I said, I understand, Lee, but mate, you know, listen, I'll get better. I'm just starting. I mean, I didn't win, a, I didn't win an award in my first uh, bloody game, you know, in the AFL. I mean, I'm, I'm here to, to learn and I've got, this is an opportunity for me. And he, he eventually sort of saw uh, my plan. And then I was doing radio at Triple M and then I was doing, I ended up going in to get sacked, believe it or not, for Channel 10. And the new CEO, Robert Osmotherly, said, come in here. He came in to say, you're not going to do your tips every Thursday. And two and a half hours later, <laughs> I walked out with my own TV show. So, and he's still a great mate of mine. So those things happen. And so I was the only one doing it and took, you know, it wasn't easy because I had to sort of say to Lee, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to do this a little bit of a bigger kahunas than normal. And other guys were like, you know, give me, the, you know, they're not happy with stuff. And then, well, that next year after that, so 2003, all of a sudden, uh, Vossi, Lepa, Lynch, all got contracts. We had Fox Sports coming in. So those boys had that, had their own column. So they, they did it on other days. So all of a sudden, we go from Lee, the only one doing it, to all the way through 2001. Winner Brownlow, yeah, I'm, I'm doing lots of media, of course, that week. But then after that, it just took off. So the rest of us started to become media people. And I've no doubt it's helped all of those guys. But yeah, I suppose that had to be the sacrificial lamb, I felt like, you know, competent from Lee uh, to get it done. And it, it worked great. I mean, as we... we obviously went on to and succeeded 
which then everyone was like, well, these guys, that's good. And they could talk about footy and talk about me or talk about something I've said, which then took us out of the, just the footy bubble and made us transfer over into the rugby league crew or the rugby union crew could talk about people as opposed to the game. Brisbane were renowned for uh, sledges uh, out in the field. I was speaking with uh, Ryan O'Keefe a few weeks ago and he said the likes of yourself, Rossi, uh, Lepper, were good for some on-field sledges. Can you share any great on-field sledges that you heard or perhaps that you uh, may have delivered? Well, I used to deliver a lot, but we talk about it from... So when Dr. Phil Johnson, who's our great psychologist at the time, did the era, I mean, he's behind Wayne Bennett's pretty much all his teams and he's behind was behind Buchanan and a bunch of other teams, successful teams. And I think, I think the beauty and what he taught us was like, if you want to, if you want to sledge people, you've got to be in control. So you're not reacting. You're always the first one. If you do it, you initiate it, but then you don't respond. So when I'd say, hey, um, geez, Joel, geez, your ass is looking a bit fat. <laughs> Uh, all I'm doing is getting you to think. And then if you come back and, you know, you swear and say, I'll get stuff, go and get stuff, you won't care, whatever. I don't respond then because then I've got him engaged. So then he's distracted. So psychologically, he's distracted. Plus our personalities, Bossy and, and the boys at Lepo and the bo- other boys who could do it, their brains are set up to do that. And they love that because the thirst for the competition. Uh, Nigel Lappett, for example, you wouldn't do. So when I played against Nigel and the Lions my first time against the, the Bulldogs, because uh, I know Nigel so well, I love him to death, but he, he just was an absolute uh, Monty. If I just give him a little bit, just a little bit of verbal judo, and just started to get him to think about himself and say, Jesus, Nigel, you know, something like, go and win the hardball. And he knows that that is, uh, that's not true, but he's also knowing that, because I know him so well, he would be so upset that I used my knowledge against him because he would never do that. He would never want to win a contest by bagging out me because he's not set up that way that he would be so disgusted by that he'd just react. <laughs> and sure enough, he did. And he comes out, he wanted to kill me, he wanted to punch me, and I'm like, beauty. And then Nigel after the day, we're having a good laugh and a good chat. And he said, oh, brother, you got me. <laughs> yeah, you got me. And so, you know, just stuff like that. And we would use that against all our opposition. Obviously, some we didn't need to because they're that bad. We're just whooping them and running around going, just have a look at these blokes. Can't even make a tackle. Uh, so, you know, and you're, you're doing this at the top of your game. But Sydney were always a good team to really uh, work out who to do that with. And you'd sort of, over the course of the years, you'd work, you know, you'd have your targets. And they, 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 no one was spared. There wasn't like it was just Sydney that copped it. Everyone copped it. I believe, uh, I don't know who told the story, but uh, I don't know if it was Michael Voss to Brett Voss, but he said to him, uh, my dad slept with your mum. Yeah, see, that, that, that is true. See, I was the only one. He, none of those boys ever remember this happening. And uh, I wrote it in the column that, that following week. And I myself almost nearly forgot it. But I'm standing there about a metre from when we're, we're getting well beaten and Brett goes back to the top of the run. I would tell the story, take a couple of deep breaths about to come in, you know. And it's only you know, 25 metres out, straight in front, early in the third. And Brett had just towered Michael up. Unheard of. Unheard of. Never going to happen. And, you know, the first half, St Kilda were up. The fans down there, you know, Eddie had stayed in the old Telstra Dome or whatever, Marvel Stadium it is now, sorry. And he's there and he's about to come in to kick this just absolute soda. And, and he said the words to the effect that my dad uh, fucked your mum. And, and I think, I think when, when Brett came in and, and kicked the ball out in the fall, I, I think it was at that stage I thought, shit, <laughs> that was a good sledge. 
I'm going to remember that one. So it was, uh, it was beautiful. Yet Vossi being Vossi and his brother being his brother, you know, probably just thought of man, power for the course. And that touche. Yeah, you got me there. And I remembered it because I was like, man, I got to do that one. If only my brother played. Simon Black, he uh, featured on uh, one of the uh, recent uh, seasons of Survivor. I remember Harry, the uh, ice cream guy, said that uh, Simon was unfairly edited during tribal councils because Harry was, I think, trying to you know get something out of Simon, trying to get him to react or get him to quote-unquote play the game. And he said that he had some of the best comebacks, but because it's television, it was edited. Um, what about uh, Simon Black? Was he uh, much of us on the sledge out on the field? Oh yeah, no, he, well, he learned off the best. I mean, you got you got some pretty pretty handy enforcers. We, we had an unusually high amount of enforcers. We had like sixteen in the group, and if you didn't enforce some Aussies or force a thinker, so in the model, the you can be a pair or a triangle. And so once you have that sort of, particularly Mozzies, like Blackie's a big Mozzie, which means like Adam Gilchrist, you know, uh, who's also a Mozzie, just uh, talk and, you know, needs friendships, avoids confrontation, but just loves. And, and when you're confident, you really do start getting the motor running, the, the verbal diarrhea that comes, the verbal judo just starts to roll off the tongue. And, and when you're up and confident like he was, oh, absolutely. He would have just given it straight back. Because, I mean, he, he had to do training with us. He had the Scott brothers would have sledged him. Vossi would have said, I would have sledged him. Uh, Martin Pike, uh, you know, Alistair Lynch, Chris Johnson, Justin Levers, you go on and on and on. So he had to put up with those blokes saying, come on, buggy. And giving him crap because he's just so laconic and it's just so, such a wonderful bloke. He really is. And you had to see him under pressure and in, in something, in, in a environment where you're like, you know, on TV but fighting for your bloody tribal council it's you know that's pretty you get in the game it's pretty important so he he would have given a fair bit and i was sorry given a lot of blokes jeez mate just uh, particularly sledges like i had to remind sledges all the time listen uh sorry taggers particularly taggers and we always got tagged most most weeks you know one-on-ones blokes that are bending the rules and i don't know how many times we'd say mate just remember good players have people on them that's why you're on me. I had the talent. You don't. And so keep running. I know you're fit, but and run all day. I'll take you to the ball because you can't go and get it yourself. Man, good luck. You want to take on your mate, just remember who's got the talent here. And it ain't you. I'll tell you what, uh, I reckon maybe <laughs> not so much on uh, the block. I think we need to get you on the next season of uh, Survivor, potentially, Akka. Well, I, geez, good luck. How much time do I have? And the, the problem is, if you don't win... <laughs> <laughs> they get paid. They're bloody horrible things to do. So, you know, you, you go through this amazing journey and you starve yourself. You've got to deal with people that are also stabbing you in the back. But then you walk away with, with no nothing. You, know, you might get a, a couple of dollars for going on the show. And my bloody, uh, I know how hard it is for the families. My three daughters are probably, and my wife might leave me before I get back. Jeez. Thanks. <laughs> uh, the Brisbane Bears, uh, number 35. Uh, you're keeping the number 20 uh, warm for Simon Black when he would eventually come. But uh, Brisbane Lions, you wear the number 12. Some players are very, I guess, superstitious about numbers. What say you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was born on the 24th of February. And the guy I had 24 was Roger Merritt. And he was a real, he was really nasty to me. And he just give it to me every day because I wasn't tough enough. So... Uh, I couldn't quite get, I didn't want 24 after that, even though I wore 24 in juniors in, in the state carnivals and the national carnivals and bloody always brained it. And so 12 being half 24, you know, it's a good number. Uh, the, the guy, 
my mum used to date Mujura, who was playing at South Mujura War number 12. And there's a photo of me with number 12 in my books and stuff, uh, watching him on the sidelines. So I figured that story is a bit better and I love number 12. And so once I put it on, not that I played bad at number 35, but that's like, that's like your rookie number. Here you go. He's the, he's the crap left numbers kid. There you go, 35. And then I went to 20. They moved me forward, uh, which was good because, you know, it's almost like a ranking. You're getting better. So he's a lower number. And then <laughs> Troy Clark left. And Troy Clark was a, is a super player and a great, and a great fella. And uh, he said on our footy trip, mate, I want you to have the number because I wanted the number that meant uh, you, you are superstitious. And I was because, you know, that's the way he rolled back then. You, you think that it matters. It probably doesn't. But she's like, if I could have number 12, that'd be good. He said, mate, you can have it. And the club didn't give it to me that next year. And I complained. And I said, hey, listen, Troy Clark himself said it. Do not give it to a new guy or a rookie. They don't deserve it. I'll, I'll take it and I'll make, I'll make you proud of wearing number 12. And they said, oh, okay, Jason. I know if you want it that much, you can have it. So that was the story how I got it. And I wore 21 because my... When I went to the Bulldogs, one, it was reversed. They were good numbers to me. But then my daughter, Charlotte, my eldest daughter, she's born on the 21st of February. So she was due on my, my birth date and that wasn't going to happen. So we got around early and 21 is a good number. So, so there you go. That's how I got 21. To one of the dogs. And I was going to say, uh, you're on the 24th of Feb. I'm uh, the 23rd of Feb. So um, perhaps oh, uh, us posterians. Yeah, we can have some deep discussions. Uh, um, maybe we can create a new podcast. Could we call it the Pisarian Pod or something along those lines, perhaps? Oh, we're the bloody rainbow chasers, I tell you. <laughs> we're the house, rose colour glasses. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, well, you know, Charlotte's 21st. I've got my nephew is the 25th. My half-sister's the 26th. Uh, there's like, I don't know, uh, five or six in my family that are in that little that little wheelhouse. My daughter, my last, our last daughter, or the, the most recent one, Zoe Mike Tyson, she's the, the 8th uh, of February. So uh, February's a good month. So I've been told if you really want to get deep with it, that apparently uh, the, the Pisarian, that's the last uh, of the lives. So until you go to the, the next realm or the next place, I don't know how, how deep or how much you want to think into that though. Mm, that, with that, I wonder if that's uh, like, like they have there with the is it which which is the religion where you keep coming back it's the one of the indian ones is the hindu or buddhism yeah it sounds familiar yeah you, you, but like with reincarnation you can come back as something reincarnation else, that's the word i look reincarnation that's right yeah i'll come back you know, probably come back as a bloody lion or something just to <laughs> annoy the hyenas and take along and you know have a pride for myself i don't know just maybe i've reached the top and just transfer in and then I'm forever a god I don't know but bloody, but bloody hell I'll uh yes maybe you're right I feel like maybe it is the last I feel like my soul had unfinished business that's why it's so energetic and needs stuff done and aggressive and and you know uh mindful and also grateful but yes very I always feel like that extra energy I mean no one in my family has the energy I do so whatever they gave me I get up at bloody five and go all day if I have to and go to bed just because it's it seems like I should that's pretty. That's pretty much our role. You mentioned uh, your children there. Now I'm guessing the premierships are also like children. But if you had to pick one, which one would you pick? Well, the first one's great. Everyone wins. It's great to get the monkey off the back. I remember if you watch the footage, that premiership uh, is so good. I was on my hands and knees when the siren rang. Lynchy had the ball. I went straight down. I was in just such emotion because. You know, with my mom passing away in 97, so what's that? Mm -hmm. uh, she was, you know, four years before, and all that just is all in there 
in the journey you take, the crap you take, and you know, all the work you invest. But the game I played in 2003, where I don't know if you remember, it kicked five goals, two, five goals, two in a grand final with 21 touches. So really, you know, seven of my possessions are shot on goals, and and, and the way I played and tackled and chased, it was. Yeah, I cannot still believe I've had a lot of people. I always give them grief about the only bloke ever to kick five goals in a grand final from a wing and not get a North Smith medal. But the black guy I got beaten on by did set a record uh, 38 touches. And we both, ironically, were arguably the best two on the ground. Clark Keating did come second in the voting, as he reminds me every time I see him. Jared Healy, who did the voting that day, did apologize to me. He said, Shit, I, I really think I should have. I'll give you more of a score there. So I said, yeah, thanks, champ. But it's only an award. Uh, it doesn't define me. But, uh, yeah, I played well that day. It was, it was just one. I sounded blacky. I mean, geez, he played so good. Jared Healy, a former great Swan, of course. Uh, you were linked to the Swans back in 2003 or around that period of time. Uh, you mentioned on the Sacks podcast that you had a meeting with Paul Roos. How close did you become to Jason Akamanis becoming a Swan? Uh, well, Akamanis becoming a Swan is probably... Uh, I don't know. It was close. It was close. They, Andrew Allen was a good mate of mine. He came through Maine. He was the CEO for Brisbane in their first premiership, then left and went to the Swans and did a job there. And I think, I think that relationship enabled it to get to that point. We did have a meeting with Paul Ruse and I, I, I mean this in a nice possible way and I don't take credit for it, but in our chat, he, he realized, I said, man, you know, you've got to get these young guys in this group going because, you know, you look like a, a stale footy club. The older guys aren't producing. They're not your future. They're not going to win you a flag. And he, it's like a light bulb moment. He said, mate, that is a great idea. So uh, the reason that the sort of the dollars uh, for 450,000, I think, geez, or 500, maybe 550, which isn't a lot of money these days. Back then it was, it was probably at the higher end for a guy my size and shape, you know, the bigger blokes, uh, while incredibly, incredibly overrated, uh, they do make more money. For some reason, they, they think that they're rarer. But uh, guys in my school said, oh, we could command that money. But maybe I think they just balked us at the price. Uh, but, you know, it was close. It was uh, potentially going to the Swans just to uh, get rid of Jared Crouch tagging you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, he's, he, he knows. He's a pest. He walks around life and he's just a pest. He knows. He walks <laughs> into pubs and people go, just that guy. He really looks like a pest. And uh, you, go, you go talk to him and he, he sounds like a pest. And then, then you play on him and he is a pest. He just really is. But I know, I know, uh, I know he's probably, he's, he's a wonderful guy, you know. He's a, he was a great adversary. He's a great guy to come up against. And, you know, he was one of the harder ones to, to dominate. But, you know, as you do when you've got, got talent, as I reminded him every time, he kicked the ball uh, back to the opposition, back to us, thankfully, that, uh, that there's a reason you're tagging me as I mentioned before. So I'd say to him, you know, Jared, it's a bit like Jordan talking about, uh, remember Gary Payton, remember in that, he was talking about Gary was all the glove. He was doing such a great job. And Jordan's like, no, nah, I didn't have any problems with him. He, uh, he's a good defender, but mate, come on. So it's a bit like that. I mean, he, he certainly restricted me at times. He was, he was a very good tagger for, for the Swans and did a good job most of the times. But, you know, in the end, they think they win if, if I don't get 30 and kick three. So every time you don't get that, uh, when you normally would dominate, they think, oh, this, we played well. But it's not an issue, really. It's never been an issue. But he did it. It's good. Yeah. It was uh, good fun. Was he one of the tougher players to uh, get free against? Or if, if not, uh, who would you say is one of the tougher players that you came up against uh, during your time? 
Yeah, it wasn't too difficult. I mean, the Swans, what they would try and do is they, they said, look, we're not as talented, so we've got to shut them all down. So they would tag everyone. And, you know, it was easy to get rid of. We could just, you know, go forward or go behind the ball or go take someone else and, and do something just to upset Paul Ruse's great tactics. And we would do that. But I think uh, the, the guys that gave him more trouble were actually the guys who were a bit taller and uh, just had, like, you just get away from Because eventually, like, even with Jared, like, he's pretty much the same. He's got good endurance as I do. and But he's not as quick as me and he doesn't have the skills. So his hope was that he could hold on in back play and just kind of restrict my movement. I mean, that was, that was all he could do. But the ones that really annoyed me were, like, playing on Kudafidis, uh, not that he's a tagger or Jared Waite early on. Mm. So he was, ended up at forward. But, I mean, he's 6'5". And to play on guys is that big beer, and I'm only 177, so he's, you know, rolling around at 194, 195, or probably 196, 65. And he's, he's quick. He's not as quick, but his long, bloody arms would just get in the way if I was on a lead. And, and just they're more annoying to play on. And when you're around trying to use your strength to, to bounce off them, they could just get a hand in here and there. They were more annoying and more difficult to play against. I'm not saying I didn't... Uh, dominate all of them at different stages which you do because you know you've got the talent and that's what you do with guys you eventually get on top late in the game or whatever it was but yeah I always found those guys more difficult than say the guys like Krauts like Jared was uh, shorter than me and he can't mark overhead like I could so we isolate him uh, down forward at kick five and no problem so just trying to work out you know, if I get went forward with a guy who's that big, you'd have to try and outrun him or outsprint him on the lead. So that d- depends more on things that are out of your control, where the things you want to win, you want to be in control with your genes and stuff. So, yeah, I think that I've explained that well enough. But there's got those guys who are just that bit bigger give you a bit of grief. Now, at the end of 2006, you do end up winding up at the Western Bulldogs. How was the initial transition going from uh, Brisbane to the Western Bulldogs in Melbourne there? Uh, quite simply, it's uh, it's easy. It was uh, just a different club. I mean, uh, Brisbane, a very wealthy club by then, you know, success and, and lots of coaches, lots of great staff, just amazing. And the talent, they go to Bulldogs, who had an amazing list coming on and, and the talent was there, but yet I'm running it like just a skeleton staff compared to the, the lines. And, and so the money that they needed, I mean, they don't have at that stage, you know, enough support. To, to sort of drive that like a Collingwood or a Richmond would with members, for example. So they're very line of the AFL. And the problem that the Western Bulldogs was for me in particular, being sort of writing columns and talking about issues, is that they're dependent on the AFL every single year for every single reason to keep afloat. So when you're critical of them in any way, shape or form, as little or as big as it was, they would just completely just crap themselves mm. and just be paranoid about you know their own interest of survival. And that there is... Uh, just a, an interesting side note with Brisbane, the, the powerhouse then at that stage, the wealthiest club in the land in all the country. So, you know, and we, 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 everyone wanted to play us. Yeah, so everyone wants us to go and play in Perth, their teams, because they make the most money because everyone shows up like they do with Collingwood every other year because their fans travel and, and everyone wants to go and watch. So, yeah, that, that gives you this, I think, the overview or just the difference between the two clubs is the power and money in their position at that stage. And who could deliver a uh, better spray, Lee Matthews or Rodney Eade? Without doubt, Rodney Eade. Rodney Eade is the sharpest tongue and he's the evil. I mean, the biggest spray that you'd get that I got or any one of us or that I ever saw were from Robert Walls. I mean, he was brutal. So, you know, everything – no one can rate as hard as Rob. I don't know, Rob, just one of those guys uh, – Old school Barassi style. You ever see any footage of Barass? I mean, Barassi was his coach, so you can imagine what we got. It was, 
there with no place to hide. You, if you didn't have a thick skin by the end of being coached by Rodney, uh, sorry, Robert Walls, then man, you're never going to make it because uh, the, you're subjected to this psychology that was just, uh, it was... It was just hitting them over the head with a sledgehammer every day. And until you, you either broke, you come back a better man, or you, you, you just stoically put up with it and said, no, nah, well, all right, I'm going to fix this. Uh, so Rodney Sprays, I mean, he's good with the older players. The younger players, uh, like Brian Lake, used to cop every... Brian! He'd yell out, Brian! What are you ever doing? Uh, and so poor Brian would be copping this spray. The only problem with Brian was he'd go and play better. So... <laughs> So when Rodney needed him to bloody play better, he'd just give him a spray, which, you know, didn't take much. Every bloody game, poor Brian Lake, as Brian Howe says he was then, was getting a spray. So, yeah, it was, it was good with me. He didn't give me too many. But, uh, yeah, let me tell you, he wanted to. <laughs> he'd be in the box, uh, the boys were telling me, and he'd be like, one of the players would stuff up, and Rodney would be like, what the what? Who does he think he is, this bloke? Rodney, eh? Like, he'd just be, and blokes would just erupt in laughter, but some of the sprays in the box. You put a mic in the box, he, he, he would be, oh, my God, he'd be, uh, and some in the public found out, and I think they did. The spray, <laughs> I think he ended up getting public about uh, Will Minson. I think he denied it at first, but anyone that knows him knows that that was exactly what he would have said. <laughs> I guess 2009, uh, you were the leading goal kicker for uh, the Western Bulldogs, but um, in retrospect, do you think... I mean, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. 2020 vision in 2020. Um, looking back, that you should have retired then and that way you would have gone out on your own terms because obviously the following year, 2010, I believe that's when uh, big, bustling Barry Hall uh, comes in to save the day and you're kind of a little bit on the outer with the club. Do you think, uh, look back at 2009 thinking, maybe should have held the boots up or maybe looked at my options? Definitely, definitely. Uh, in, in the sense of uh, where my status was, if I wanted to work in the league, yes. But in life, it never works that way. And I'm glad I went through that because I was leading goal kicker in 2009. People forget that. Mm. As a small forward at the Bulldogs, the leading goal kicker. And the problem with when Baz came is they just went to him too much. Mm. And so I went from this uh, really good smattering of, of players every week kicking threes and fours. You know, you might get a spread of five or six goal kickers. It went to sort of one kicking six, seven or eight, and then all of us getting next to nothing. And in team environments and successful teams, it did. It, look, it was good. It, uh, good for Baz. He loved it. He, you know, the ball needed to come to him and he's the type of player that can just do that. But for us and me personally, it was uh, bloody horrible. They stopped kicking to me and I'd go on the midfield and, of course, you know, I'd go to, go to get where the, I thought we would win the ball and then we wouldn't because our ruckmen weren't as good. And uh, your man, the one you're on, is getting it and making you look bad. So it's just this, just this sort of uh, horribly uncomfortable last year where it didn't need to be that way. It really didn't. So, yeah, thanks, Baz. <laughs> was any, any personal or professional animosity because uh, of Barry Hall because of that or no? No, nah, no, nah, I love Baz. I mean, we're only 10 days apart, born the same year. You wouldn't even know it, born in 77. But we, uh, he looks about, you know, 65 compared to me. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, a, nah, he's a good fella. I see Baz all the time. Whenever I see him, we catch up. So, um, no, no. And I didn't know him really until I only knew him from afar. But we actually got on great. Probably because we were much older. Elder statement. Had great careers at that stage. And we are just there at the Bulldogs trying to help. And, and, uh, and he had that bad falling out with Sydney. So, we're kind of... We're kind of bonded, you know, mm. there's brothers with the same kind of uh, bad taste from the industry, I suppose. Was the Western Bulldogs, and were they, was the team a little bit de delusional in the sense they, they thought they were better than what they were? Or 
I'm, I mean, that's just sort of by hearing previous interviews with you, not that you've said this directly, but did they think they were better than what they were uh, at that time? No, I think they just had a, a bunch of individuals who were just a little bit confused on how to be a leader, you know, and leader and be leaders uh, in any way, shape or form. And the beauty about being a really good leader is not just to be there and forthright when you need to be, but also be adaptable and flexible and, and empathetic to, to blokes' personalities. And they tried. I think they tried, but they didn't understand my history either. So the Brisbane guys, I grew up, you know, playing with a lot of them. They saw me when I was sort of 16 coming through. I was in their pre-season with them. I was playing good footy. So they didn't really see that. They only really saw that I was now 30 coming to the club, you know, mm. uh, superstar of the game at that stage, you know, storied winner, you know, come with baggies because I wouldn't cop any, you know, they wouldn't suffer fools. And, and I, if I had a problem, I'd say something. I wouldn't do that now, of course, because I'm far, far greater skills. But back then, you know, that's a, you think you're, you're doing the right thing. So I think that's what's more the issue. I don't think that, I think the talent was there. It was the right decision every day of the week. They, I mean, we played in three prelims out of four years there. So that club was, was certainly there and thereabouts. You get in a prelim, man, you're in a good team every, every single year. Absolutely, and much to my chagrin, uh, they did take out the 2016 grand final uh, over oh, my yes. swans, but uh, we won't talk too much about that. Um, is there, I mean, is there mended fences uh, with some of the, the former playing group at the Bulldogs? Uh, that's a good question. A few of the guys, I think, to their credit, said, look, I think we did the wrong thing, and I think we behaved in a way that's not really consistent with what I believe. There's a couple of players that, you know, I certainly have, have rung and said sorry in, in a sense of like for the for what happened. And there's also me saying, look, I understand, but, you, you know, what David Smorg and these kind of blokes, I mean, they just, you know, they you criticise those guys, they're going to do exactly what I said before. They're just going to justify it. He'll justify it to the cows come home because he's just that arrogant. He's just that stubborn and full of his own belief that he's right. And that's they're guys like that you just have pity for because that's the reason they don't actually succeed much in life. And the people around them think that they're probably jerks. And they are. So until he changes and guys like that and they learn their lessons, and I had to. I had to take responsibility for that. I think a few of them did. Uh, men did fences. I mean, there's some blokes there that Ben Hudson's of the world and this kind of goes, I mean, they're good guys, but you know, the way that they behaved and what they did in the background that they think I didn't know about and found out about afterwards, uh, they've got their own issues. The problem with all of that is actually not with me. Mm. It's with themselves and it will always stay with them until they ever solve it and understand, okay, well, that's the way it was and Aka was like that and maybe we should have had a bit more empathy for his position and, and how hard that it, it takes to get like that and to be involved in the media and to do all that and and to have that profile and still perform the way they did. And then we just cracked the sads at a couple of things and we just ganged up against him and all because we wanted to just feel good like we're doing the right thing. And now we're, now we're on reflection go, geez, did we really need to do that? That's, that's a bit much. Maybe, maybe we should uh, handle a bit differently next time. So there you go. That's, uh, that's something that only they can solve, I think. Before we do wrap up, I was hoping to do a quick word association with you. Do you accept? Well, I accept begrudgingly. I'm late for my next appointment, but I, I, I uh, yeah, which I'm okay. supposed to be we'll, down. So, yes. We'll, we'll make this quick. Uh, Robert Walls. Uh, first coach. Do I have to do like one word or just many? Just, oh, just what comes uh, to mind? Oh, uh, yeah, great coach. Craig McRae. Far one of the funniest men I know. Just, he's a superstar. It was with him Saturday night having a beer. It was just awesome. It was just an awesome fella. Handstand. Best idea I've ever had. <laughs> Bob Murphy Bob Murphy um, heart, heart of gold Changed a lot um, But 
yeah, uh, probably did things he shouldn't have, um, and we regretted it. But yeah, Doug, he's a, he's a, he's a changed man, I know. You've been very generous with your time, Jason. Uh, just quickly, I believe uh, the name Tony Modra has just been trademarked by WWE. They've got an Australian boy over there uh, in the system with the name now Tony Modra. Should you uh, go? Should you go and license your name, Jason Akamanis, just in case it gets uh, stolen from underneath you? Well, you could have Akamanis, but Akamanis, which is my name, is uh, and pronounced that way. I think I don't know. I, that's the dumbest thing I've heard for the day, honestly. The legal legal things like that that trademark someone's name. I mean, seriously, it's your name. UFC have just talk about thinking that they're way more important than they really are. That's a great example of what you shouldn't be doing. I mean, it's just Tony Monja. I mean, he's a superstar. Adelaide Crows full forward. And Ed, just like Cameron Smith. I mean, how many Cameron Smiths? There's a golfer. There's an mm. NRL legend. There's a bloke who I met the other day who works for. Uh, REIQ doing nothing like you know so there's guys like the same name I don't think it's worth it but yes <laughs> Akamanis there's a rare name at the best of times good luck with trademarking that bad boy uh, you're an absolute AFL footy star even though I'm back for the Swans you're always uh, appreciated watching you play and I appreciate you taking the time with me today and uh, sorry that I've made you late for your next appointment but uh, the legendary Jason Akamanis thank you so much no problem JB anytime <laughs> The much pleasure in declaring Jason Akamanis the 2001 Brownlow Medal winner. Well, what a night with a difference. So hard here for Andrew McLeod in the end, but for Jason, what a night. Megan with him. I'm pretty sure they're getting married shortly. A sensational night for them at the Gabba. With them all in front of them. You see Matty Campbell there, Michael Voss, his captain. Lee Matthews will be close by. Nigel Lappin and Simon Blackall there as well. From that formidable midfield. It's my pleasure now to introduce the chairman of the AFL Commission, Mr. Ron Evans. Ron? Ladies and gentlemen, the AFL Commission, along with football followers and supporters throughout Australia, acknowledge and congratulate the 2001 Brownlow medalist, Jason Akamanis from the Brisbane Lions. So Michael Voss, Michael Voss is making the medal presentation. It was to have been Shane Roy Woden had the medalist been here, but in the tradition, Michael Voss has made the medal presentation. Jason, I think you might be able to hear us. Give us a thumbs up if you can hear us, Jason. Good on you. You never do things by halves. Jason, Ron Evans, the chairman of the AFL Commission, is about to propose a toast. Jason, congratulations. You've been outstanding this year in the midfield after several years at the, in the back line. You've main, maintained brilliant form, winning all Australian selection for the second time. You won the Lions best and fairest in 1999, and you've become the second Brisbane Brownlow medalist after Michael Voss victory in 1996. Well done and congratulations to Jason Akamanis. Ladies and gentlemen, please be upstanding. 
The 2001 Brownlow medalist, Jason Akamanis from the Brisbane Lions. Jason, what a night. What a night. You're telling me.